0: You are now listening to Bigfoot and Beyond, featuring the OG Bad Boys of Bigfoot, the Dr. Heckle and Mr. Jive of Squatchology, the Chip and Dale of Bigfoot, and I'm not talking about the cartoon. Please welcome your hosts, the Bigfoot celebrity couple, Biff Clobo, better known as Cliff Berrickman
1: and James Bobo Fay.
0: Hello, Squatcheteers! Welcome to Bigfoot and Beyond with Cliff and usually Bobo. Bobo's not here today, so you're stuck with just me, but I wouldn't leave you alone with just me. It's kind of weird. So um, I brought in a guest today, a good friend of mine, um, a local guy as far as I'm concerned. He lives right up the road from me, uh, a pretty well-known Bigfooter in general. Um, and I thought we'd get in deep with them and see what's going on and his new projects and explorers past for those people who may not know him. Well, anyway, I'd like everybody to welcome Todd Neese. Todd, thank you very much for coming on Bigfoot and Beyond with Cliff and usually Bobo. Well, it's my pleasure, Cliff. It's, uh, it's nice to speak with you. Yeah, I'm sorry Bobo's not here, but, you know, that's the way he goes. He's out in the field from what I understand right now, so uh, I did not get a chance to schedule this with him, but you were available, and I appreciate that. We wanted to get you on. Well, let's do it. Yeah. So Todd um I kind of view you you know the way I view Sasquatch history or or at least the people involved in the Sasquatch history is kind of by generations you know there's the 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 horsemen and there's a few people that come before the horsemen like JW Burns and you know Fred Beck and like the people involved in that kind of era, but then there's the Four Horsemen, and then one or two generations later are people like you. And then ki- I, I kind of consider myself like you're like an older brother in this whole thing because I came after you. I knew about you when I was bigfooting or just starting out. You know, you were already kind of established. So that makes you have a longer history than most people. Can you tell us how you got into it? And this information is kind of for the people who are like new on the boat, so to speak. You know, they came in maybe with finding Bigfoot or something like that and tend to learn about the Sasquatch thing through the online resources that are available today. So some of these people, the the newcomers, the new new people on the new side of things may not know who you are. So give us a little bit about your background in the subject and how you wound up still Bigfooting after all these years.
1: Sure. That's a really kind way of
0: of calling me old, but I'll accept it. Hey, man, I I wouldn't be able to say that about you unless I knew it about myself. Dude, I'm 50. You've got to be at least that. We'll go with veteran. How's that? Veteran. More
1: ways than one. Yeah. So anyway, uh, to answer your question, my initiation into Bigfooting, as it's called, was rather abrupt, to be honest with you. I should start out by saying I was not the least bit interested in Bigfoot at this time. I didn't watch any programs on it. I didn't read any books on the subject. I was kind of uh, agnostic. I mean, you, you can't live in the Pacific Northwest without at least hearing about it from time to time. But um, that all changed for me on April 3rd, 1993. At, at that time, I was a combat engineer with the Oregon Army National Guard. And combat engineers, for those that uh, may not be familiar with it, um, our job, our duty involves quite a bit of of high explosives. And by that, I mean C4, TNT, dynamite, ammonium nitrate, and so on, just depending on on what the mission is. And uh, once a year we had we were given access to some private timberland. And this is located just off the Pacific coast, uh, roughly seven or eight miles east of the little town of Seaside, Oregon. And we had gone up there that day to do blasting at three different sites, um, each one posing a different scenario, and then we would... We would do our deal and, and then, you know, come back, check our work, and, and on to the next one. At this time, we had already detonated at two of the sites, and I should point out these are gravel pits. Uh, we weren't just blowing up, you know, the forest. Um, we, we would contain our explosions in these uh, gravel pits that were spread out throughout this uh, this land that we were had accessed. We lit the fuses on our final explosive which was about 250 pounds of ammonium nitrate that we'd been soaking in diesel fuel for a while uh, this was to simulate a cratering charge where you'd say blow a road in half to where the enemy forces uh, couldn't use that route so we lit the fuses i think we had about 11 11 minutes to to get down to a safety area and there we'd wait for the explosion and then again go back and, and check our, our, our work I was a passenger sitting behind the driver of a Humvee. And as such, it it gave me the opportunity to glance about the countryside, which was very natural for me to do so, looking for deer and elk, because I had hunted that area uh, many times uh, for deer and elk. And so we had four vehicles in all. I was in the second vehicle. We got out out of there, and on the way to the staging area, the safety area, uh, the tree the tree line dropped down low enough that i I had a direct view down to the second quarry that we had detonated perhaps an hour earlier. And so as that came into view, what struck me was I see these three dark figures standing right out in the open in that quarry. and my first my first thought was, what the heck are those people doing down there? Because we had very heavy security, as you can imagine, due to the dangerous uh, element that we were dealing with. And really, just the, the second I said that, I realized that these weren't humans at all. Uh, and by that, I mean, they were jet black, not wearing any any sort of uniform or clothes. And behind them is this kind of a concrete gray rock. It was uh, basalt, and the contrast was, was excellent. Um, I could make out their, their profiles.
0: It was daytime, bright sunlight and stuff. Uh, what were the scene conditions? It was
1: really a nice day for April in the coast range. You know, a lot of times you just expect rain and clouds, but it was a bright, clear day about, I would say around three o'clock in the afternoon. And so it was an unobstructed view of, of these um, things. And what was the estimated distance, one more time, please? Well, I no longer have to estimate it because I finally got smart and got on Google Earth and uh, using their measuring tool at the apex of this corner being the closest point between me and them, was 282 meters. It's a fair distance, but bear in mind that as soldiers, we train with our weapons on 300-meter ranges. So we're able to identify on a MARF range, uh, pop up targets. And, and these are basically plastic targets that only show you half of a human silhouette and they pop up for three seconds and you've got to knock it down within that three seconds. And I hit those puppies with just iron sights, no optics at all. I, I, uh, I don't know why I can shoot those 300 meter targets a lot easier than I can the, the 200s. Do
0: those shooting targets uh, show you different kinds of targets, like civilian versus combat, or something?
1: Not, not on the mark range that we used. Uh, they actually, they actually look like like uh, they were made to look like Russian soldiers. <laughs> but anyhow, um, so and I and I qualified regularly as a sharpshooter, so uh, very good vision and very good uh, trigger control and whatnot. Yeah, so I, I'm looking at these figures, and these aren't half human size. Targets, these are full-size silhouettes, uh, enormous in size, uh, ranging from seven to nine feet high and, and a good four, four and a half feet across the shoulders. And uh, so just in a way of uh, description, their heads sat squarely on their shoulders. Uh, it was almost as if they their deltoids almost originated behind their ears and just went straight out to the shoulders. So there wasn't a very discernible neck like you would see on a human. Again, broad shoulders. Uh, to be honest with you, these, they, all three of them looked like the perfect bodybuilder. They were very muscular. Like Bobo? Uh, <laughs> no, I'm afraid they, they departed from, from you guys. But um, Were they all three the same
0: height or were there a different differentiation in um, their sizes?
1: No, uh, I'm glad you asked that. The one in the middle was was obviously the tallest of the three, and I I've estimated its height at uh, perhaps nine feet or so. The two on either side of it. And keep in mind, we're getting a full frontal silhouette. They're they're facing us. They're obviously watching our convoy across the ravine. And uh, the other two came up to the shoulders of the of the big one in the middle. But what's really interesting is that that large one, or they're all large, but the, the biggest of the, of the group uh, stood there like a statue. Uh, it was the activity of the other two on either side of it that really got my attention. Uh, but but just uh, to finish with the description of the silhouettes that they presented, the arms were a third longer proportionately than a the humans. They, they literally reached... Below their kneecaps, uh, extremely long arms, and the legs too were were disproportionately long in comparison with the human. But back to their activity, the two on either side of this large one kind of stooped forward a little bit, and they were rocking from side to side. You know, switching weight from one foot to the other, and in the process, these long pendulous arms are swinging below their knees, and they exhibited this behavior the entire time i watched them and speaking of that this was not a two or three seconds something ran in front of my car i think it was a bigfoot type of encounter i watched them for a full 25 seconds and like i say the entire time this is going on these these two two were doing the the watusi um it, it, obviously not human now how did the encounter end Yeah. So we were driving, again, away from the explosive and uh, down to the staging area. So, uh, but, you know, moderate rate of speed, but not, you know, we knew how much time we had to get out of there. But uh, we rounded a corner and and obviously I lost sight of them. And, And the deal was we weren't that far away from that staging area. So after i lost sight of them i just kind of collapsed in my seat and my head was just swimming with a million questions and you know what do i do about this and you know i've seen something scientifically if not historically important and i face the same kind of questions other eyewitnesses do when it comes to do i go public about this or do i just keep my mouth shut uh, you know, it's many other questions, but I'm just trying to take it all in, you know, the thought of them, of, of my being out there hunting uh, year after year after year, and the thought of them being out there the entire time that I was out there and not even having a clue about it. But anyway, as it was, we came into the uh, staging area and... My first instinct was to jump out of, the, out of the Humvee and run back up the road because I wanted to see him again. Uh, you know, it's like it's like seeing Jesus, and then it ah, has gone, and you just everything inside of me just said, "Go look, go look, go see him again." And I we had a standing rule that everybody had to be accounted for and within sight of the group. I, I went as far as I dared, maybe 150 yards, and. Um, I'm standing on my tiptoes, I've got my hand up to my forehead, I'm I'm just stretching to try to see over this this little berm that was between me and the quarry, and unfortunately I I was not able to to reacquire that view, but as I'm standing there, I hear somebody yell out my name. And I look to my right, and here comes uh, Sergeant Martin, and he says, what are you looking at? And I just said, no, nothing. I mean, that was a fact, but he kept coming toward me. I remember he was smoking on a cigarette and he gets right up close to me and looks me right in the eyes and says, I don't suppose you saw what I saw down at that second blast site. And I just, I'm like, I don't know, Jeff, what did you see? I wasn't going to be the one to. I know what if I said something and he said, no, well, I saw, you know, so I just bat it, said, what did you see? And he said, well, and he I remember looking left and right, make sure nobody else was in earshot of us. And he goes, I saw three huge um, hair covered, I don't know, Bigfoot, I guess. And of course at that, I'm like, dude, yeah, I did too. Wasn't that crazy? And we are just like, you know, it's nice to have that, that uh, confirmation, it, it just it just to know that somebody else shared what you you were uh, able to to see and and uh, but to be honest with you I didn't need any corroboration um, I can't unsee what I saw uh, in fact I can close my eyes and, and still see it quite clearly but again just nice to have uh, uh, another eyewitness.
0: Stay tuned for more Bigfoot and Beyond with Cliff and Bobo. We'll be right back after these messages. Your online checking account should not cost you money. And that's why Chime, an award-winning app and debit card, has no overdraft fees, foreign transaction fees, monthly service fees, or transfer fees. They have over 60,000 fee-free in-network ATMs at locations like Walgreens, 7-Eleven, CVS, and probably tons of other places if you look close enough. You can also send money to anyone, even if they are not on Chime. So no hidden fees for you or cash out fees for them. So it's time to say goodbye to hidden fees. Join the millions of Americans already loving Chime. Sign up takes only two minutes and doesn't affect your credit score. Get started today at chime.com slash Bigfoot. That's chime.com slash Bigfoot. Banking services provided by and debit card issues by the Bancorp Bank or Stride Bank, N.A., members of FDIC. Out-of-network ATM withdrawal fees apply except at MoneyPass ATM in a 7-Eleven location and at any AllPoint or Visa Plus Alliance ATM. Other fees, such as third-party and cash deposit fees, may apply.
1: As it was, and, and I'm sure most of your listeners know that uh, as a traditional guardsman, we all had nine-to-five, Monday through Friday, jobs. And we volunteered to train, do our military training one weekend a month, and couple weeks in the summer. And uh, so our next drill would have been in early May. It was amazing to find out that we had two more eyewitnesses come forward, independent of one another. And uh, same description, same number of animals. And uh, so in effect, this was a very unique uh, encounter, not just because of the what we were doing up there, we were, we were literally blowing up the the mountains. Uh, but multiple animal sightings, as you know, are, are fairly rare. Um, and then to have multiple eyewitnesses of multiple um, subjects uh, is is even rarer still. So it kind of stands out there as, as a, a pretty, I don't know, historic, if you will, uh, encounter. And it's, uh, it's changed my life ever since.
0: Yeah. So um, the, these other witnesses, I know that uh, the partner who is with you in the same um, situation, the same vehicle perhaps, saw it and said, did you see that too? But these other witnesses that came forward, um, were they in other units or were, did they see the animals? We know that they saw the animals the same day or was it not the same day at the same time? Or what, what do you know about what the other people observed? Was it exactly what you did?
1: they were they were in the same unit that was 1249 combat engineers Um, and I personally never met them I've got I got this information second hand from somebody and it's funny because I was good friends with uh, my first sergeant and his wife and and I had confided in uh, what I had seen back in April and the wives and girlfriends of the soldiers will set up uh, quite often on drill days. They'll set up a kind of a bake sale table where they'll sell us homemade goods and soda and whatnot, uh, to, to raise money for the family uh, family group for get gatherings, pic- you know, summer picnics and Christmas, uh, whatnot. And and uh, Lena, the wife of my first sergeant was telling the other gals at the table about what I had described to them the month before. And I, I don't even know what the odds of this are, but as she's actually having this conversation, two soldiers walked into the the front of the armory and were walking past this this uh, bake table and overheard her say the word Bigfoot. And they both stopped in their tracks and looked at each other and looked at Lita and said, what, what were you just talking about? She told them about, you know, m- my encounter, and they looked at her and said, we saw them, too. And that, that's how that came about. I, unfortunately, uh, Lena didn't get their names, and I was never able to, to locate them. But I, I trust that that incident took place and, and uh, was glad for it. Nice. Well, how long did it take you to go
0: public with what you saw? And how did that, like, who did you first tell? I like, start sharing outside of your close, um, you know, military circles, basically, you know, your friends and your job and that sort of thing.
1: Right. Well, I honestly didn't know anybody in the Bigfoot community at that time. And you're right. I, I did share it in confidence with uh, close friends and my father, for instance, and, and, and some very close friends, people that knew that I'm not one to just come up with crazy stories like that and uh, even then I was, you know they were somewhat uh, that's nice uh, but you know I don't blame them because like I said if somebody had come to me even a good friend at, at before the day before that and told me that I'd, I'd be a little not condescending but you know just like okay good for you so I don't blame doubters I tell people you know if you don't blame me that's cool because I would have believed you either. <laughs> so, but, but again, it, it, it never ceases to amaze me how just 25 seconds in then my 34 years of life completely changed the direction of, of everything. Where I wouldn't be living where I live. I wouldn't be married to who I'm married to. I wouldn't know people that I know, uh, such as yourself. And um, But getting back to your question, um, it's kind of funny. I was uh, one day, I, I, just, I decided I was just going to kind of keep it to myself, you know, do my own research, uh, finally watch those shows and whatnot. And one day I was reading the Oregonian newspaper and I was going through the classified ads. Um, and lo and behold, here's a slightly oversized help wanted ad that had in bold print Bigfoot. And then in smaller font, not not bolded, was it just it just said uh, uh, research group looking for a field researcher full time. Inquire, and, and it was at, I can't make this up. The number was one eight hundred Bigfoot. I know who that dials. Yeah, yeah, it was the Bigfoot research project that was headed up at the time by Peter Byrne, one of the the pioneer researchers. And, one of the horsemen we mentioned earlier, actually. Exactly. And, and fortunately, Peter's still with us. He's, he's going to turn 96, I believe on the 26th, if I'm not mistaken. But he's still going strong, and he actually does get out in the field. But anyway, I called that number because finally, after a couple of months, here is an opportunity to get, kind of get this off my chest because it eats you alive to keep it in like that, to not – it's to see something like that it really traumatizes you and i don't know it, it really make gives you pause to, to wonder what else is out there and uh it opens your mind and and your eyes and so i thought here is my chance to just it was the first professional uh research group that i had come across and so i called the number and it went to voicemail. I just left a very short message. I go, my name is Todd Neese. I saw something in the Coast Range that I think you might be interested in. If, if you're serious, because I don't know these people, I go, if you're serious, please give me a call back. And they they almost did immediately. And they ended up sending me a questionnaire, it was probably like six or seven page questionnaire. It's pretty, pretty thorough uh in the mail and i ended up filling it out and getting it back to them and they ultimately ended up sending out initially one of these uh associate field researchers a guy by the name of todd deary he met me he called me up but he said when are you going to be down there again i said well i've got drill you know next week and he goes i'll meet you down there i want you to take me in there and I said, well, that's great, except you can't get in there. It's, we have special permission, and all the gates are locked, and they have security running around all over that, that area. He said, just meet me up there. So I said, all right. So I met him up there, and I'll be damned if he didn't have the master key to all of the gates, uh, at that time owned by Cavanham Forest Products, uh, and then later sold to uh, Willamette Industries uh, and then we we proceed, opened the gate and proceeded to go into the actual quarry where I'd seen these and this is, keep in mind, this is the first time I've been back
0: And how much time had it had transpired by then?
1: Two months or so uh, It was in the summer early summer and we drove up in his Jeep and we pulled in there and he gets out I pointed to where they're at I get out, and he starts walking to where I I showed him where they're at, and I kind of froze for a bit. Um, Last time I was there, I had 60 armed troops, and here I am up there, unarmed with a complete stranger in an area that I know these things are, and he turned around and said, are you coming? And I just thought, "Uh, yeah, just just give me a second, Uh, and, and I finally got my nerves about me, and we looked around quite a bit, and we did find some tracks. Uh, he reported back to Peter Byrne what he had experienced, and uh, next thing I know, uh, Peter himself came out, and, and we went back in there. Uh, and that's how our friendship started uh, over, gosh, over 28 years ago. And we've, we've been friends ever since, and we've gone out uh, many times in the field doing uh investigations, and uh, we've also worked together quite a bit on, on uh, a few expeditions. Did you volunteer for the Bigfoot Research Project for a period of time? I did not, because at that time, my civilian job was that I was a vice president of a shipping company in Portland, and, and I, don't, I didn't dare walk away from that. But, but uh, I did offer from time to time to join them on, on some uh, investigations and whatnot. But I wasn't officially a member of that. But that's that led to my introduction uh, to Ray Crow, who, as uh, you know, had the Western Bigfoot Society for many, many years, uh, pre- preceding my sighting by, by probably a decade. And they held monthly meetings in Ray Crow's bookstore down in the basement, and. I, I laughingly refer to it as uh, kind of AA for for Bigfooters. Yeah, it's it's a place where you can feel comfortable with everybody that's around you, and everybody's going to listen to you and, and, and uh, most likely believe you. And so that's where I gave my first public speaking uh, was was back then,
0: uh, summer of '93. Now we were chatting before the, this this podcast and you said that somebody sent you a recording of that same presentation.
1: Yeah, and I I believe it was Larry Lund because I remember he recorded every one of those those
0: meetings. Yeah, he's he's great his documentation prowess is insane, man. He he recorded a lot of stuff over the years. He's a wealth of information.
1: Oh, absolutely and Anyway, I, I don't even know where I found this disc. I, I found a pile of discs, and I just started putting them in one night uh, last week. And here's this 34 year old me telling the very same story I just told you. The only difference, I, and a caveat to that, was at the time I did not accurately know the distance between me and the, and the creatures, and I think I, I claim it might have been 600 meters, but. In actuality, uh, using Google Earth and their measuring tool, it was it was exactly two hundred and eighty-two meters, give or take a couple of meters. And uh, but other than that, I I listened to it, and absolutely nothing has changed over twenty-eight years in what I just described to you. So, but it was kind of cool to see that. No, that that must be
0: amazing to kind of see you in the past. Yeah. If only, uh, you know, past you knew that future you was going to be watching it one day.
1: Now you're really blowing my mind.
0: (laughs) Going Star Trek on you. (laughs) Yeah. Well, um, th- now that th- this event started, you on a lifelong thing, man. Like, like your whole life has been kind of devoted to this ever since. I mean, not thoroughly one hundred percent devoted because you have other obligations, like work and your lovely wife Diane. Um, I want to, you know, too often we're talking to Bigfooters and we don't give um our spouses, uh, especially when they're researchers like Diane, enough credit. Can you? briefly give us a lowdown on diane because a lot of people may not know about her either if they're just learning about you and like maybe her history and what you guys are doing together now
1: well diane is absolutely fantastic and a great uh, partner uh in many respects but truth of the matter is diane had been researching long before i ever had so she's actually she's been doing it for 40 plus years and she started out in florida in her late teens, she had heard about some county sheriff uh, had, that had a, an encounter with with Bigfoot, and that just lit a fire under her. And uh, so she's she's uh, she's worked hard. She had a, a she's got a degree in forestry, and uh, which helps. And she teamed up with some other people down there looking for what they call the skunk ape. And uh, and we've actually gone down there to, together and, and did some exploration in the in the green swamp a few times and and she eventually moved out here and you guys got married
0: I mean the uh, that must be really amazing that's a
1: story in itself.
0: Yeah, you know we'll have Diane on the podcast at some other point and like get in the nitty gritty. But I just wanted to give an acknowledgement to uh, um, Diane just because we have you on. and You guys are a team in a lot of ways, and um, it'd be a shame that, to not at least you know raise my glass to Diane while we while we had you on.
1: Um, well, she was co-author of a book called uh, *Bestia Elementum* uh, along with uh, Bobby Short and a few others. And uh, we go to different conferences, uh, sometimes solo, sometimes together, but uh, back in 2015, we decided to merge our our research groups. She had what was called the Stocking Hominid Research Group. I had American Primate Foundation, and we ended up getting married in 2016. And we thought, what the heck do we have? Two websites and two different organizations. And so we decided to co commingle them, if you will, and rename it the American Primate Conservancy. And we've been running that for, well, ever since 2016. Now, you guys got married in
0: 2016. And this is, check out this segue, at Beachfoot. Am I correct? Oh, absolutely. Now, Beachfoot has become its own just just or organism. Everybody knows about it, and it's an invite-only situation. Um, tell us about Beachfoot, how that came about, and how it's going. Because it was just a few weeks ago, if I remember right.
1: Uh, you're correct. Um, Beachfoot was uh, kind of a, a brainchild of mine that, you know, I was down at the coast, and I was thinking of all these famous people that I had gotten to know over the years, And I just thought, what would it be like to have all that brain trust in one room at the same time? And I just took it one step further, and I thought, I know it would be better than that. How about getting all these researchers together in a casual, outdoor setting for three or four days of nothing but sharing and networking and getting to know each other on on a personal basis? Uh, And it... Turned out to be a hit. Uh, I know you've attended several times, as has Bobo and and many, many other people um, over the years. And it's just kind of taken on a life of its own, to be honest with you. Um, We've had people come from as far away as uh, Australia, Russia, England, New Zealand, and all across the US and Canada. And I have to, I'm kind of proud of the fact that this is not, this is the only gathering uh i wouldn't call it a conference i I really think of it more as a a retreat for for uh bigfoot researchers but it's the only conference i know where the speakers pay to come there instead of getting paid to speak and they all well and they share openly because they're they're in the they're in the um, presence of their own contemporaries so Right, and you did mention about payment, and uh, it, this is a charity event too, right? It is, it is. We've uh, we've raised money for different uh, causes. Uh, uh, we we raised money for the uh, Wounded Warrior Project one year. We sent a check for a thousand dollars to them, and whatever money we make, I, 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 I be honest with you, we've been in in, in the red more than the, the black.
0: Well, yeah, there are overhead costs, and there's uh, you know some food involved in the campsites, and, and and a lot of things, really, a lot of things, really. But whatever extra money does end up in charitable hands, zone, I think that's really cool.
1: Yeah, and, and then we'll we'll roll over some of that to pay for the next year's rental of, of the campground. But yeah, it's been uh, we're about to celebrate our fifteenth year. And, uh, but getting back to your original point, Diane and I decided in 2016 that we were going to get married. And we hadn't really planned it out very much. well at, the, at this point. I found out one of my speakers, uh, Professor, uh, Rettman, uh, Alexander at the time, um, he, was not only a professor and a researcher, but he also uh, was an ordained an ordained minister. So I said to Diana, I "Go, wouldn't it be fun to do a surprise wedding at Beachfoot? I mean, think of the money we'd save with no invitations. <laughs> we have all of our friends there, no invitations, and so talk to Retman. He Yeah, let 'Yeah, let's let's do that. it will be fun.' And and it was it really was a surprise. Uh, um, we just put it on the calendar. As 6.30 special event following our, our our barbecue. And so as everybody came into the, the shelter area that we do our presentations in, Diane got on one side of the, the wall where they couldn't see her. I was on the opposite side, and Rettman comes out and says, a lot of you know me as Professor Mullis. Uh, uh, he says, uh, but I also wear another hat, and he pulls out one of these uh, – clerical sashes and wraps around his neck and you could have heard a pin drop, but I'm sure everybody was thinking, We've never done church at Beachfoot. <laughs> right. It's getting, it's getting weird. And then he he called us out. He said, Todd and Diane, would you join me? And and I have to tell you, it was a lot of fun.
0: Oh, that just must have been so moving, you know, such an important uh, moment in your lives um, with uh, all your friends at an event you organize. just like, how cool that was that. That's really neat.
1: Well, what's even more cooler is uh, we happen to own the only wedding certificate that is witnessed by both Peter Byrne and Bob Gimlin.
0: (laughs) Did you get their signatures on the certificate? Yes, of course. Wow, that's pretty cool. That's really cool.
1: Wow. But yeah, it was, it was a kick. And like I say, we've been working ever since together and it's been a, a great team. Well, so, you know, some of the things, I know you
0: guys go big footing out here in Mount Hood National Forest and other places and that sort of stuff, but some of your uh, larger expeditions, or at least the bigger splash expeditions, shall I say, um, have drawn some attention. So I'd like to ask you about, um, I think it was operation sea monkey.
1: Well, again, I, I was, I was just thinking one day uh, that, um, We'd like to. Um, at the time, as you know, we, we, my wife and I were living aboard a forty-two foot motor yacht down in Portland on the Columbia. We'd lived there about three and a half years, and we actually put it in our brochures that uh, phase two. Once we retired, our plans were to take that that boat up to uh, British Columbia. And do spend a summer just exploring these uninhabited inlets that go tens, twenty over a hundred miles in some cases, and check them out from the water. It's just a kind of a interesting way of doing it. Plus there's a ton of of uninhabited islands, uh, specifically the, the Broaden archipelago up in the northern tip uh, between the northern tip of Vancouver Island and, and the British Columbia main, mainland. And a friend of mine came by one day and he was looking at my brochure and he's a First Nations uh, bushman, part of the Kwakwaka'wakw tribe of Vancouver Island. And he and his wife stayed with us uh, here at, at the Chateau de Squatch, our, our home up here on Mount Hood. And uh, he, he read that and he goes, he's like, dude, you got to go now or pretty soon. And I'm like, uh, I'm still full-time active duty Army. I can't do – I'm talking about three a three-month cruise up there. He, he says, even if we go for a week, he said, so what's the urgency? He says, well, we know as natives that, that have lived there for thousands of years that in late September, early October, uh, the temperature in the ocean drops enough that uh, the shellfish clams, mussels, cockles you name it become edible otherwise they they tend to have some dioxin in in the warmer months so he goes and this was on Labor Day so we're like the first week of September and he wants to go the last week of September into October and I'm like well we have a, a lot of work to put something like that together. We need a, we need a boat. B, we need to put together a team and C, we need to raise money for it. because It's not going to be cheap. He said, let me worry about the boat. I have friends up in Campbell river and all oh, I can make that happen. Don't worry about it. He says, you work on getting a team together and raising the money. And so I said, okay, we'll try. So I, Put together, I think a pretty darn good team. Uh, other than myself and Tom Seawood, this uh, native friend of mine, we were able to get Tom uh, Steenberg, who is a noted researcher and a published author uh, from British Columbia,
0: and a previous guest here on Bigfoot and Beyond with Cliff and usually
1: Bobo. Yeah, yeah, he's he's, he's a great uh, a great. Brandon, researcher, and, and he speaks well for himself. Then uh, we also were fortunate enough to get Ron Moorhead. I'm sure your listeners are aware. of Ron, he's been doing this for quite some time. We also got Gunnar Monson, the uh, uh, founder of Monster X uh, podcast, and uh, he researches the Tillamook, the coastal area uh, here in Oregon and Washington. Uh, and then we have two videographers professional videographers join us and so i went ahead and did my one and only GoFundMe, fund me trying to see if some of my friends would step up and help us pay for this in the meantime i told each of these guys you know be prepared to bring at least 600 bucks a piece because you know just the diesel fuel alone and food is, is going to eat most of that up and so I was amazed. Within three weeks, we raised uh, nearly seven thousand um, dollars, which covered ninety percent of our costs. And so I just told the guys, "Put your wallets back in your pocket." And, um, and I was really impressed that people were were kind and generous like that way. But uh, so we we uh, all met up in Campbell River uh, late September again, two thousand sixteen. Uh, Tom had procured this beautiful um, trawler, a fifty-foot trawler named the, the Clodowa, uh and captained by one of his uh, relatives. And we set out for six days, covering over 140 miles and exploring five different islands in the course of, of those six days. And really, our ammo, it was because it was a short expedition. Uh, I, I really thought about more as a, a practice run for what I hope to do in the future and longer term. More of an exploratory thing. But we would anchor offshore maybe a 100 yards uh, of these different islands. And this boat was equipped with two inflatable zodiacs. Uh, and we would go to shore and set up well, look for evidence obviously and identify areas that we felt uh, would make obvious game trails and we'd set up game cameras um, we'd set up uh, audio equipment we also had um, I had a set of four seismic ground sensors that would actually detect vibration in the ground and send a signal out to the boat if they get triggered and then we would get back to the boat and get set up for the evening where uh, we had a very expensive infrared binocular that we uh, was kindly loaned to us by the Olympic Project, and it could film and everything. And we would take shifts, two-hour shifts throughout the night from sundown to sunrise, and we put go up on the top deck and just scan the beaches for any heat signatures that might appear, uh, and then go wake up our replacement. And so it was, it was a, it was the real deal. Uh, unfortunately we didn't get a whole lot of evidence. We did find some tracks, uh, potential tracks and, and there was some pretty weird stuff that, that went on as well. Um, uh, tree knots, uh, when we got to this one island, village island, uh, four of us went to shore uh, three of us researchers and, and, and a camera. and we pulled the zodiac up on the beach and no sooner did we shut the motor off we heard a tremendously loud thump back in the tree line um, sounded like somebody slamming a 300 bol- pound boulder to the ground and we caught it on film and you can see everybody's reaction it was like whoa what was that
0: Stay tuned for more Bigfoot and Beyond with Cliff and Bobo. We'll be right back after these messages.
1: I had asked the captain on the last day, because we were just making this up as, as we go. I said, can you find me, can you identify an island that has a river coming off of it? I'm thinking not only you got clams and, and, and uh, cockles and whatnot, but you might have fish from there, which you'd think might attract it. So he finds this on the charts, and we go there and we anchor, and four of us go to shore. Tom Seawood was piloting the Zodiac with four of us that he was going to drop us on the island. And so we get off on this little jetty thing that's maybe 10 feet tall, that obviously was constructed by somebody. Um, and uh, so we walk, we walked the jetty to shore, and no sooner did we get onto the beach, we noticed these these enormous uh, prehistoric-looking bear tracks that were sometimes 14 inches across kind of tracks. I mean, I had never seen a grizzly track before, and there wasn't just one. There were a number of them, and they were different sizes, and, and there were even some wolf tracks, and I got a little nervous. And I did have a shotgun with me uh, with slugs in it, and so we were going to to say, you know what, guys, just get this done and get the heck out of here. So we proceeded to set up two cameras facing the beach uh, when the captain came across the, the radio. And he said, oh, how's it going? And Gunnar had the radio. He goes, oh, pretty good. We've already got two cameras up and uh, we just need to get the seismic sensors in and then we'll be ready to to, to get picked up. Oh, okay. Very good. Well, uh, who's got the shotgun?
0: It's a reassuring question. Yeah.
1: <laughs> there was this pause and he goes, uh, niece, why? <laughs> he goes, well, you might want to load it. There's a bar coming. So they were they were out on the other Zodiac watching a full-size male grizzly coming down the beach toward the jetty where, again, we're on the other side of it and there's a 10-foot jetty, so we can't see the bear. We have no idea how close it is, and of course, Gunner tells me what what the captain had said, and I'm like, "Well, two things struck me. One was there's a bear coming. The other was I thought the thing was already loaded. So <laughs> I opened the breech of this this shotgun, and sure enough, there's not any shotgun shells in it. So I quickly reached for this. I remember Tom had given me this uh, a zippered bag like you get at the bank. He, he, he said there's shells in there. I opened this up and. Every one of these shotgun shells was corroded. I mean yeah, I mean, you know how there's supposed to be you know, brass ends on them. They were like almost solid rust. You couldn't even see any brass and I'm like I'm digging through them trying to find the the least corroded of them and, and I'm fighting to get I put it right in the breech, and I'm trying to get the breech locked to where I knew it would fire and then that took several attempts and I finally jammed it in there. Loaded the rest of the, the ammunition tube and, and just hoped that maybe I've got one shot. And I have no idea, as corroded as it was, whether it was even going to eject. So I get that done, and everybody's looking at me like, well, Mr. Leader, what do we do? And I'm thinking, God, was it on that geo or something? I think I've seen this this movie before. I'm like, okay, guys, here's what we need to do. We all need to spread out in a, in a line and make lots of noise. Everybody like, okay, and then what? I said, then we go toward the jetty. Yeah, but the bear's on the other side of the jetty. That's the only extraction point. We've we've just got to do it. Just everybody keep your head on a swivel. We start walking, I realize nobody's making any noise. I'm like, come on, guys. we got to make noise. Well, Tom Steenberg, as I'm sure you can picture this, Tom Steenberg thought it would be cute to break out into – the Jungle Book theme song of The Bear Necessities! The Simple Bear Necessities! I can't make this step up. We all kind of look at them go Tom? Really? And then just out of nervousness, we all, we all joined in.
0: And, Did a rousing barbershop quartet of The Bear Necessities. Yeah. I hope that was on camera.
1: I don't think it was. <laughs> I, wish, I wish it was because it, 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 it was classic, but We just very sheepishly started moving toward this jetty, you know, anticipating at any time this huge bear is going to come over the top. Finally, we spot Tom out there in his Zodiac, and this had the, you know, uh, center console steering. And we go, hey, we're saved. And then he's out there at the end of the jetty, standing up and slapping the side of this console as hard as he can. And it's like, Oh, the bear's here! Yeah, that's I know what that guy's doing. <laughs> yeah, and then he ends up uh, yelling something and quack quack ewok at the bear, and and I would later come to find he basically threatened the bear. We don't want to kill you. We have a gun. We just want to leave. Please don't come any closer. And anyway, he radios us says, "The no, bear just. I just drove the bear into the trees. So run for it." And we did next day we had to go pick up the cameras and the seismic sensors and uh we all looked at ron of course hey buddy you weren't out there and who else okay you're going and uh drew straws for whoever's going to run the boat but uh, anyway i'll keep that story story short a little bit more to it but it was it suffice to say it was a very exciting Trip in a great, um, uh, like I say, exploratory uh, first run at what I hope to repeat. Uh, We we only did it that one year, and then uh, we had planned on doing some more, and for whatever reason, it just didn't work out. But I think it's an excellent way to do uh, research because there, it's it's thought that these these Sasquatch can they that they literally swim from island to island looking for game and, and uh, forage. And, and there's plenty of that, I can guarantee you.
0: Well, yeah, and you go down the list of uh, sighting reports that have been... That have occurred on boats looking at the shoreline. The Sasquatches are digging clams, or eating flotsam and jetsam, or whatever. Just picking up who knows what they're eating. They're like cruising around the shorelines doing something, and you have an unobstructed view from a boat, um, especially at night, to be fantastic. And I, Bob Titmus, um, I believe, saw Sasquatches that way, the one I, if I remember correctly, back in the 1940s, uh, up in those very same islands somewhere. Um, I can think of a small handful of other reports off the top of my head um, of other people seeing them in the same situation. So it seems like a very valid research technique.
1: Well, I will say when we were going through the Johnson Straits, uh, Thomas Seawood pulled out a chart and some dry eraser markers, and he just went down the map and put red dots where he had personally known of sightings and by the time he was done, there were like 25 red dots on that map all along our route. So, yeah, they're definitely up there. And, and uh, I plan to go back.
0: Well, Todd, thank you very much for coming on the show and speaking to me. Um sorry Bobo wasn't here. Um, how can people get a hold of you? What's the best way to learn about what you're doing right now in Bigfoot land here?
1: Well, thanks for asking. We have a, a website. Uh, you can find that online at uh, org. Coming up on September 24th of this year, I'll be speaking at the Watchdog Bigfoot Festival in Mena, Arkansas. And then later this year, I'll be speaking at the Nebraska Bigfoot Conference in Hastings on April 23rd. Uh, following that, I'll be speaking at the Sasquatch Triangle Conference in Coshocton Ohio on May 14th, and then the Virginia Bigfoot Conference uh, in Stanton, Virginia on June 25th. And then we'll be getting right into Beachwood after that.
0: Wow. You're booked a long ways out, man. Good for you. All right, guys. Well, there you have it. Thank you very much, Squatcheteers, for listening. And I hope everybody appreciated just as much as I have to have Todd Neese on the show, an old friend of mine. And I don't mean old in necessarily that sort of way. But um, I hope you get a hold of Todd if you're looking for a speaker for your events or you just want to pick his brain about something. He has a lot of experience and a lot of knowledge in the subject. So, uh, Todd, thank you very much for coming on. And I guess I'll talk to you soon.
1: It's been my pleasure. Thank you.
0: All right, Todd, you take it easy, man. Well, Bobo missed out on that one. Um, A little sad about that. I think he would have enjoyed that and picking Todd's brain. Uh, Of course, Bobo's Todd's friend as well. So it's just nice to get friends back together. Um, Thank you very much, listeners out there, all the Squatch-cuteers listening to this sort of thing. And uh, I appreciate you listening to Bigfoot and Beyond with Cliff and usually Bobo. Um, Next week, I'm sure Bobo will be back. I mean, if he's gone for more than a week or so, I start getting worried. So um, next week, tune in for God knows who we're going to have on. And in the meantime, since Bobo's not here, keep it squashy. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Bigfoot and Beyond. If you liked what you heard, please rate and review us on iTunes. Subscribe to Bigfoot and Beyond wherever you get your podcasts, and follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Bigfoot and Beyond Podcast. You can find us on Twitter at Bigfoot and Beyond, that's an N in the middle, and tweet us your thoughts and questions with the hashtag Bigfoot and Beyond.